Hello and welcome to Different Conversations, where every week we have a different guest from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences here at the University of Westminster, along to talk about their work, their research, what they're doing at the moment that's exciting, interesting and newsworthy. And if there's anything in uh, United Kingdom society and British society that I've discovered as a foreigner that's important and newsworthy to people, it has to be football. So this week, I'm really pleased to welcome our guest. And our guest today is... It's Professor Steve Greenfield from the Law School at the University of Westminster. It's Professor Steve Greenfield. It's a pleasure to have you here today. But you're a professor of law. Why do I have a professor of law here with me today to talk about football? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, at Westminster in the Law School, we've developed quite an expertise around entertainment and sports law over a, over a long period of time. So, for example, we started teaching our undergraduates entertainment law way back in the early 90s, and it's a subject that you'll find in American law schools, but not in many English or UK law schools. And out of that, research has developed, and we've ended up with a research centre as well, So we and we have a, a postgraduate LLM in entertainment law as well. So there's a, a large chunk of expertise going back over a while in, in, in Westminster. So, and it's always been my passion, sport, and, and I've been very lucky to be able to then work in the field of, of sports law and a bit of sports sociology and a bit of sports management. So uh, it's a more rounded picture of, of sport than just law. Mm -hmm. You'll forgive me for making a crack at uh, law as an industry, but in my mind, law is sometimes quite boring and uh, isolated, but law and entertainment, that's an interesting crossover, an interesting mix. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I think it's its one of those funny things that people outside of law see it as a very conservative, dull, uh, narrow-minded, conservative discipline. Uh, and that's perhaps the perspective from professional practice and it's only when you really start to engage with law at a different level that you can see how, how useful it is. And it's really when you mix law in with other disciplines. So for example, sociology or psychology or politics, economics, management. I mean, law impacts on all of those areas. And what, why wouldn't it impact on sport in the same way? Um, because sport is a big part of civil society. So law matters in terms of its relationship with, with sport, although sports law is a relatively young phenomenon. And I presume, and this is me being very ignorant on this topic, uh, sport these days is, let's face it, quite big money. So there must need to be a lot of uh, law around how these things work. Is that what well, I'm it's, thinking? It's, yeah, it's big money at the top end. Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of professional sport, but sport is not just about a profession. Uh, and, you know, football on Hackney Marshes or Sunday morning pub football, which is in itself a cultural phenomenon to be uh, to be seen, it, it is very different and it has different types of regulation. So the governing bodies are responsible for, so for example, the, you know, the Football Association. You know, and here's an interesting story around around... You know, every country has a football association, okay? And it's normally named after the, after the name of the country. So the Welsh FA or 
Scottish FA. There is but one football association. It's not the English Football Association. It is the Football Association, which tells us quite a lot about our history and uh, and the politics of, of, of football and how the English viewed themselves as being the pioneers of, of, of sport and the regulation of sport. So the Football Association is responsible for the top end right down to the bottom end and governs the game accordingly. So we've got what happens on the local playing field as well as what happens at the, you know, the big stadium. So it's a different, I guess it's a different types of law apply at the top end. It's far more about commercial commercialism so things around perhaps intellectual property commercial contracts broadcasting rights yeah, sunday morning pub football hasn't really got into broadcasting rights yet um so it's it's different types you know where, whereby your football over the in park football is perhaps more concerned with disciplinary issues or you know, registration of players that that type of thing so law applies equally but in different types of law i guess is the answer i hadn't actually uh, considered that coming into this i thought we'd be talking about you know very big salaries and player transfers and the super league and we'll talk about that i promise but i hadn't considered the fact that uh this was going to extend all the way down to your beer leagues your your basic uh the football yeah, I mean, everyone we- plays for example or the sport that everyone plays and, and there's then a different dimension around things like, for example, safeguarding and, and, and welfare of children, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which has become a huge issue. And it's been in the news fairly recently because of the recent uh, the report that was was released about the historic abuse. Um, you know, when we talk about it in terms of historic abuse, but it's abuse that has affected children you know, throughout their lives. And there's some very, very sad stories around around that sort of very dark um, era for, for football. Um, so there's lots of different dimensions to it, um, not just, you know, the high-salaried players at the top end with, you know, agents and in terms of the management of the club. So there's lots of different aspects that we can, we can dig around with. Okay. That's... Um... Yeah, like I say, that was really actually at a different angle. And so is that what a lot of uh, specialism in law and entertainment is, is the, the full spectrum of entertainment, not just the, the high-end stuff? Well, enter- entertainment, um, it was, entertainment law was traditionally around the music industry, so recording mm-hmm. and publishing, the theatre and, and book publishing and TV. So the, the, there was... And, and cinema. So there was the traditional entertainment industry, and it was effectively the law and business of those industries. Um, mm-hmm. Now that's been revolutionised, and what, one thing that we've seen is these industries coming closer together. So they've merged partly because of distribution. So the internet's become become vital, but things are no longer just necessarily a cinema product or a theatre product. Of, so that, that's really the history of the entertainment. Uh, well, certainly of entertainment law, and now it's it's really pretty much anything goes in lots of ways. So we've now got social media. Mm-hmm. Social media is now seen in itself as a form of entertainment. So we've got the regulation of social media, and we're just really starting to work with, you know, with that, and because it has a whole different set of issues. Um, 
And interestingly enough, of course, that ties back into to football and cricket because we've got a boycott of social media taking place shortly because of of the attitude of the social media companies towards you know towards racism, racism mm-hmm. on the, their platforms. So entertainment, and it's really technology that's changed entertainment. You know, um, so certainly in terms of of the music industry, the shift from we've seen the shift from into CDs and then the shift into MP3s, mm-hmm. file sharing and downloading, and now we're into streaming. And that's brought a different set of uh, regulatory challenges um, with it. So technology's changed the entertainment industry. Unbelievably, you know, it looks so different. I mean, you know, who would have thought of Netflix and, uh, and Spotify uh, being ha- able to get music and TV and film on demand? Uh, so that that's all changed, and then sport has also blossomed at the at the top level, and and become far more integrated into other parts of the entertainment industry. So in terms of broadcasting, broadcasting rights have become so important at the at the at the high end, um, and then we now got this thing of esports. So sport has merged in with you know with gaming, and that's developing in a huge way. So lots of issues around around that. So entertainment. The entertainment industry is in flux. It seems to be continually in flux. And the law is responding to that changing vista you know, in lots of ways. New things crop up. Does the law work? You know, intellectual property law has a real, you know, copyright has a real problem with new methods of creation mm-hmm. um, because it was born out of a different, of a different era. Um, and law is always reactive. It's always behind everything. You know, it doesn't really ever foresee things particularly, particularly well. All right, let's drag us back to a topic that I do mean to ask you about and make sure we cover today. Because the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically was about um, British football, UK, European football, excuse me, and this Super League shenanigans. Because I don't really understand football. I'm a bit of a foreigner. I still like to call it soccer sometimes to annoy my friends. But... <laughs> You've done so well so far not to use that term. I just had to drop it in there to make sure I said it. <laughs> but this was a big deal and it fell apart tragically. So what, what, why did the Super League fail or was it always doomed to fail, you think? Well, yeah, it's funny thing. Was it a big deal? You know, and I was sort of looking at this and thinking if I was, you know, this, this idea has been kicking around for a long, long time. You know, it was, I think it was Berlusconi in the, late 90s had, had proposed it you know and it's I think it's been ideas before then if you were if you were representing and organizing the top clubs the biggest richest clubs in Europe and you were about to offer the idea of a new competition that was going to be based around a, a television audience you'd be wanting to sell that product and I was expecting to see a televised slot with a very glossy PR um, event. I was expecting to see some greats of the game coming in to talk about what a development this was, how exciting it was, how wonderful this was. And, you know, this was the future. So I'd have expected to see it being sold. Uh, Instead, it sort of just sneaked out on a Sunday night uh, in a very with no fanfare, in a sort of very odd way, uh, almost 
as if it wasn't due to come out or they're a bit embarrassed about it or they weren't quite sure about it but it didn't seem to me to be the culmination of thinking the thing through now whether it was designed to be a negotiating tactic with uefa over the re reformed champions league or not and it just someone pressed the wrong button um so it sort of seemed peculiar but what that then did was allow this quite odd mixture of opposition to get together and to voice their opposition to the whole project so we saw this sort of unholy alliance between sky who absolutely went to the cleaners with its with its uh with its presenters um you know because it had gary neville uh and and jamie carragher who happened to be around because it it came out at the end of the game that they were commenting or that neville was commenting on uh so this opposition then so and then of course the premier league and the fa come on board and then you get all the supporters groups uh voicing their opposition so all of a sudden and and they there was nobody saying well hang on this is what this is about it was they were opposing this idea that hadn't even really been properly fleshed out or explained it was just i think that the the clubs announced that they were part of it, each individual club on its social media on through twitter uh and there was a like a statement and that was it and there was a bit of a bit from joel glazer and you, you probably wouldn't use him if you were going to uh want to win people over so the whole thing just looked like a, a pr disaster in lots of ways um but it was sort of worse because it just they never then pushed it anywhere they just left it sitting there so immediately and then of course the government weighed in said this is easy win for the government absolutely you know i mean proper open goal you know so the government says we, we will legislate we will we will prevent it and didn't quite say how they would do that uh, and it seems quite odd for this type of government to be interfering in business arrangements but you know we can only go by what they said they would do um so they ended up the opposition had no one really to rail against because there was nobody there um so the campaign just then sort of kept going and but they went sort of railed against the idea and the watchwords came out about greed hijacking the game and and uh, stealing the people's game and, and those sort of things so it, it became a really quite an odd protest in, in some ways um so the thing that i suppose when you stand back and look at it oh there was the threats to expel players from uh clubs from the premier league um and players from playing for internationals um and you know all sorts of rhetoric started developing um i suspect well, it's fairly obvious that the rest of the clubs in the premier league not the six the other 14 would be aghast at those big clubs being thrown out of the premier league because the impact on their own TV deal, the Premier League TV deal, would be catastrophic um, and would put them in a huge financial uh, problem, especially post-COVID. Um, so it it sort of just got into this hyperbole and then, of course, it all fell apart because everyone said, oh, hang on a minute, Presso, we're not that keen on it. And, and then it, another club said, well, we're not that keen either. So we'll withdraw, we'll with, and they, and they gradually. And I think oh, the only person sort of left standing at the end was, was, was Perez from Madrid. Um, although it was very difficult to find out what, 
what people thought about it in those clubs at the management level, um, because nobody really said very much. Although Perez says it's it's still alive, um, but you could sort of see how it was badly thought out because they opened up opportunities to attack it, particularly the idea of ring fencing it. So the founder clubs would get a large amount of money, but would always be part of it. Now, historically, you've always had founding clubs in things, the people who found the um, found the, the competition. And the no relegation uh, idea, I mean, that's quite common in, in sports around the world, that you don't actually have relegation. Um, and I was talking to someone in Australia this week who said that's he couldn't understand the, why this was such an upset, because that would be the norm there. Um, and we have that we're going to have that in our in our, in our rugby champ, uh, rugby premiership this year as well because clubs need to prepare and they need to plan and financial stability. Um, so that was one element of it, you know, that you're ring fencing the riches to uh, to this group. But isn't that what the Premier League did back in 1992 when it split the league off from the Football League and ring fenced their, to those clubs? But then, of course, they also let themselves open to a bit of ridicule because you had the six clubs from England. And it's worth going back to, uh, to 1998 to when the G14 was founded, which was this pressure group of the big clubs. So that was when there the, were the murmurings around the European, there'll be new European competition with the super clubs. And it's interesting when you look at the super clubs then, you know, you've got some, some common ones, which Madrid, Barcelona, United, Liverpool, Inter Milan, AC Milan, Juventus. Uh, interesting then, of course, the Bayern were in that group, as were Borussia Dortmund, as were Marseille and Paris Saint-Germain. But they also had Ajax and Eindhoven from the Netherlands and Porto from Portugal to make the 14 up. Now, that group were absent from, from this lot. So we didn't have the German clubs and neither did we have the Dutch clubs or Porto. And instead we had four more English clubs, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal and Tottenham. And of course this produced ridicule because, because Tottenham and, and, and Arsenal are languishing somewhat in in, in the Premier League. So that, you know, that enabled people to talk about, you know, was the super club, but it, it was never about your footballing ability or your footballing status at a time. It's about, have you got a global audience? You know, can you generate, do people want to watch Tottenham play Madrid rather than Porto play Madrid, for example? So, but that then sort of opened up that door of this is not about competition because you're picking clubs that aren't particularly good at the moment. Um, so I think that they hadn't really thought all of that through. Um, it did sort of look to one level, a bit like a Premier League grab with six of them, um, you know, the dominant, the dominant group. Um, and of course, the fact that Paris and Bayern weren't in, who were last year's finalists, also laid it fairly bare. So I think it was sort of doomed because of they hadn't really closed off all of the potential issues. It's almost like they hadn't thought about them.
You know, what will be the reaction? As an outsider to football, it was quite interesting to watch something that was such a big deal in this country and then so spectacularly seemed to fall apart so quickly with such opposition. But like you mentioned, like this, this isn't a first for big sports, not even just yeah. football, like the Premier League, like you mentioned, this happens in major sports when money's involved relatively frequently, right? Well, it's, it, I mean, recent years, certainly over the last 40 years, it's been about broadcasting rights. So mm. as broadcasting rights have, have developed, and we've got, you know, more channels to fill, broadcasters want sport because it fills in a lot of time, it's popular, and you can also use it. I mean, if you think about these big media companies, um, you, they can use it to sell broadband. So it can become a, a vehicle to, to sell a package, which includes a broadband package. Um, and, it, you know, you go back and perhaps the, the best example is Kerry Packer with, with World Series cricket in, you know, in, in, the, in 1977. Again, an argument around broadcasting rights because the Australian uh, cricket board wouldn't give him, let him have the, the, the rights that he wanted. So he said, I'll, I'll create my own competition. So you have always had competitions established and there's always entrepreneurs who think that they can do it better than the established governing bodies um and you've seen splits in darts snooker uh big split of course was was not around broadcasting rights because it was in the 19th century it was between rugby league and rugby union that was over paid players um but as soon as you've got an entrepreneur who comes on and says well actually there's, a, there's, an, there's an opportunity here now the thing with that is it means if the opportunity is there it's not going away so the question for the governing body is, can they exploit it themselves or do they, is it left lying? If it's left lying there, the chances are eventually someone will come along. Now, interestingly enough, if you apply an analogy to, to cricket uh, in India, there was a 20-over competition that was not sanctioned by the Board of, of Cricket Control for India. It was, a, it was an entrepreneurial competition pushed by a media company, um, so Indian Cricket League. That was the nascent new product, and it managed a bit like Packer did to attract players, and the BCC, BCCI fought it off, partly through um, bans and restrictions, which a governing body can do, and partly then through inducements and incentives in its own competitions to keep the players happier. And by doing that, it killed off the ICL and it produced. But then, of course, it thinks, well, there's an, there's an opportunity there. So it develops the IPL. And the IPL is an amazing product that has been developed, officially developed. So the official product came after the, uh, the breakaway product that was quashed. Um, I mean, it's a bit similar in terms of Packer, you know, Packer ran for, what, two years, the World Series cricket. And then they incorporated a lot of his changes, you know, the coloured clothing, the day-night games. So as an entrepreneur, he saw an opportunity. The cricketing authorities were fairly conservative and, and fought back. Um, and then two years later, it took them two years to, to, to come to some accommodation. And then, of course, they adopted some of his, some of his innovations. So I think, you know, history tells us that if the innovation is there and it can be exploited as a product, the governing, the, the, the governing body will need to incorporate it. Um, so, of course, UEFA now has to think, well, how do we deal with this threat? Because it's a real threat. 
It's exactly the question I was about to ask you. So is there a danger here still? There is, because this has been kicking around. And each time it's been raised, it's clearly sometimes it's a negotiating tactic for the for the for the big clubs. Mm -hmm. So they want more money. And you can see the more money argument. Okay. Now, if you think about the Champions League, for the last, I don't know, 10 years maybe, the Champions League has been like a story of Messi and Ronaldo, you know, in lots of ways. Two unbelievable players. So the clubs can say quite literally, well, you want Messi and Ronaldo. And what you love is a game where Messi is against Ronaldo. And we've seen some other, you know, sometimes it's more of a team than individual. They say, well, we have to pay for those players. We're the ones who are stumping up Messi's hundreds of thousands of, of euros a week and, and Ronaldo's. So we should have a bit of bigger slice of the pie to pay for those costs. So you can see why they feel that they should get a bit more because they're the ones that are actually providing the, I suppose if you like, they're providing the entertainment of this. They're providing the material that UEFA wants. The product. Um, the product itself, exactly. Um, so I can, you can understand that, you know, and in terms of UEFA's international, um, well, it, it's international um, European championships, same again, this is about the star players, but somebody's having to create and look after and pay those star players. So you can, you can see why those big clubs who've invested, and some would say it's been terribly bad investments, uh, want to claim some of that a, a bigger share back. You know, why should we get, uh, why shouldn't we get a bigger slice of, of the pie? Um, because we've got ourselves into the most terrible debt, um, which a lot of them have done. Um, so, of course, it's still there. It's still floating around. So the question is, how does UEFA head off the big clubs and keep them sweet? Mm. And there'll be another, uh, you know, mutterings about Super League and then there'll be another offer and you know eventually so we're sort of on the path towards what the big clubs want which is you know more high profile games with each other because they're revenue generators but what this has done is galvanized some of the fan groups against their owners the greedy owners um, particularly uh, we've seen it with Manchester United the American ones which is now being seen as an American -y type even though probably, you know, it's born in often, you know, maybe in Spain with, with, with the two big clubs there, you know, this is being seen as an American, uh, American notion, friend, and we're going to end up with franchises. So, you know, there's a lot of protests back at United, at Liverpool and Arsenal. And now we're flushing out, interestingly, some, some you know, potential new owners well, I'm interested in this, you know, the Spotify the guy from Spotify is talking about Arsenal. And yeah. um, so have the owners bitten off a little bit more than they can chew? And but no one can compel them to sell. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the, the last question I'll ask you on this then before we wrap up for the day. But you've already teased it a little bit. But this morning in New Zealand, where I'm from, there was the news story that a, a very large American investment firm was looking at buying a share of the New Zealand All Blacks, our rugby team, which would be the first time that the All Blacks haven't been, um, have been not privately owned, but had a percentage of them privately owned. I think is, that's going through. I think, I think that's, I mean, the last I saw of that story was, was 
is it maybe 12 and a half percent stake something along uh, those lines yeah. yeah to be owned by uh is it a venture capital company uh, or yes it was i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head um well interesting enough at the same time you know australian rugby a rugby union is in a terrible state uh, financially mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, they all because they always get beaten by you, so it's difficult, for, <laughs> difficult for them. Um, and they were actually there was a report saying they were considering going back to amateurism. So they were actually contemplating turning away from the professional game. And now they've seen what New Zealand have done. Uh, I think that's a model they would quite like. But you know, is a venture capital company going to invest in uh, Australian rugby? We've had it here in the Six Nations. Um, but you can see, actually, rugby is quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got that geographical divide between northern and southern hemispheres. And then there was talk about trying to bring maybe South Africa into the, the northern hemisphere competition. Um, and we've seen clubs move from... Um, so, so some South African clubs, franchise clubs, came into the tournament that's run... Uh, in, in in Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, or was it just Scotland and Wales? So there was a movement of, of clubs into that uh, league because they're seeking the audience, they're seeking the mm-hmm. you know seeking the money. And I think you know if you look at rugby union uh, in the southern hemisphere, the problem you have is you have three teams, and is that back to that? You're always going to see those three teams, and the problem is if if New Zealand have pulled away so far away from Australia and the competitive edge is as as slightly lost does the whole thing lose its attraction you know and nobody else coming up to challenge to challenge New Zealand um so it's i guess this 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 trying to keep the sport moving forwards and keep your audiences um and clearly at the highest level, it's going to be related to these, these rights are so valuable. I mean, it's interesting that JP Morgan was the bank involved with the with the with the um, European Super League, seeing an opportunity there to make money by providing loans against broadcasting revenue. Um, because we're talking about global audiences. Okay, so let me try and let me try and summarize this in my uh, simple-minded approach. So I've got this right. Sport is a form of entertainment that has become big money and it maybe it needs big money to keep moving forward which we can't begrudge it but there is a danger here that by seeking bigger money they are the, the term would be losing touch i guess wouldn't it that fans are feeling disengaged with what they do on the sunday morning when they have their beer league that we talked about earlier yeah i think that but that, i think that happened a long time ago you know that that, that <laughs> dislocation between um probably start the start of the Premier League. You know, that dislocation between the fan and the player and the mm. club, you know, happened a long, long time ago. When you've got players who are earning these unbelievable sums of money, then that's inevitable. And, and they're global players. So there's no localism in terms of... So, you know, certainly United is always celebrate. Well, it is at every club, celebrated when you have a local person from that area comes through. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that was the norm and now it's not the norm. You know, and almost that harks us back to the good old days. I think that's the other thing, and it's perhaps worth running up on this is, you know, if you were to want to launch this glossy new lovely product, you wouldn't be doing it during the middle of a pandemic. 
the 2021 Super League a lesson on how not to do big sporting ventures? How not to do the PR and how not to launch it. And I mean, maybe the, you know, I mean, maybe the eventual outcome is there will be more talk with the stakeholders, with the fans, with fan groups, um, and perhaps a bit more thought about what is it we're creating and why are we creating it? I don't know, but I don't expect that will last that long. You know, it's one of those things that, yeah, it's flavor of the month and then, then disappears off. And on that positive, optimistic point, I think I will wrap us up there. I'm really sorry. But um, thank you so much for that chat, for insights into entertainment, into uh, lore, and into the crossover between these fields and how entertainment as a field has grown so much. Um, really interesting chat today, Steve. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. One of the things I didn't expect to come out of this interview with Steve today was this idea of uh, sport as a commodity that has grown and become this huge, big money-making thing. And actually, if anything, as a teaser for our podcast, which we have come out after this one, but we've already recorded, don't hold that against me, was on the early days of sport, talking about the history of the Olympics. And there's a really interesting quote about people uh, getting up in the morning, going to work, going home from work and then competing in the Olympics, and then going home and going to bed and going to work the next day, which is a really great contrast, I think, with today's interview. I hope you've really enjoyed today's podcast. Um, I definitely have. And whether or not you're listening in on Spotify, on iTunes, whichever channel you're listening to, or watching us on YouTube, feel free to subscribe so you can keep up to date with uh, our next releases. Feel free to follow along on Twitter or even find us on our blog, all of which I will link down below. My name is Brad D. Elliott, and this has been today's Different Conversation.